0: This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton.
1: Welcome back. This is Dollars and Change on Sirius XM 111. I'm Cheryl Coleman, And
0: I'm Nick Ashburn.
1: And we are here live every Thursday morning, 8 to 10
0: a.m. Eastern. And you might, whenever I'm hosting, I always request <laughs> like top 40 pop hits. So people might think they're listening to Sirius XM Hits 1. In fact, it is business radio powered by the Wharton School.
1: (laughs) The songs don't have to fit with any of that stuff. Working nine to five, that kind of stuff, (laughs) right? Exactly. We we can't limit ourselves to to that. We've we've, we've done a good selection of songs. So right now we are joined with Tawan Davis, who's the CEO of the Steinbridge Group, which is structured, executed, and invested nearly $1 billion in commercial, in, in commercial and residential real estate. And you might be wondering, hmm, how does Tawan fit into Dollars and Change? Well, we will have him discuss about the the sort of social impact aspect of their their real estate investments and their approach. So, Tawan, welcome to the show.
2: Well, thank you. It's great to be here.
1: Wonderful. Tell us a little bit about, about Steinbridge, and then we'll sort of go into sure.
2: how this matters in a social impact angle. Sure. First of all, it's great to be uh, here. I remember when I applied to business school <laughs> wharton was such an overwhelmingly intimidating place so to be on campus in the new building on the radio is hugely humbling i didn't end up here that ah, says school. the harvard business school <laughs> grad
1: <laughs> yeah so that's, cool. that's cool
2: it's great to be here um well yeah so steinbridge our focus is really creating real estate alpha our goal is not just to do deals but to really structure full businesses around a strategy, around an investment strategy, and then basically create value over the long term by augmenting income. Um, It became clear to me that the opportunities in real estate really emerge at the crossroads of two things. One is capital markets disruptions, Mm -hmm. uh, and the other is uh, demographic cycle changes. So, for example, there were no major publicly traded REITs until the 1986 tax reform, which basically disrupted individual investment in real estate so lawyers couldn't spread their real estate losses across their other income. There were no um, private equity firms in real estate until the Uh, savings and loans crisis, and that created the real estate private equity firm. Today, the opportunity really arose in the housing crisis when there was a 17% drop in housing, uh, home ownership in the United States. People went from renting for 2.2 years in the United States after they got married to renting for 6.6 years, and the the demand for residential housing really peaked, uh, rental housing really peaked, and that really created a new opportunity to really invest in that space. If you partner that with real new innovations in the um, capital markets for residential investing, there were no REITs in this space before. There were no CMBS or securitized lending in investment in single-family homes. The crossroads of that capital markets disruption and the demographic changes really create an opportunity to invest in the residential market here.
0: Well, and I want to give, a, I think that context is great, and I wanted to build on that a little bit and picking up on what our last guest said right at the very end of our segment around how median incomes haven't really risen too so much. And so, you know, when people think of affordable housing, they often think, you know, lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum. But what I think we're seeing in the U.S. is there's a lot of, especially in cities like Philadelphia, especially New York, but San Francisco, Washington, D.C., and Seattle, like, Affordable housing for even people who make
2: pretty good livings right. is a real challenge. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up. But we got to remember something. You know, people around here aim to be rich. Yeah. The average American makes somewhere between fifty three and fifty seven thousand dollars for four people in one house. Right. So this this is not yeah. when we think of middle class people think one hundred and fifty grand. That's not it. This is a fifty three to fifty seven thousand dollar four people in one house, and so that's the average American income. When people responded to the rental crisis. They started building houses for rich people. They built uh, thousands of units in Center City, Philadelphia, for example, that are charging three and four thousand dollars a right. month, for which you need to make a hundred grand. Right. Yeah.
1: I look at some of these and go, Who's, right. who's, who's, who's buying? So who's they built these bed, beautiful yeah.
2: glass towers, and for uh, affluent graduates, quite frankly, of Wharton and the law school and the like, and then for wealthy bankers that come down from New York, but. No one built for the working family. No one built for working people. And that's not low-income housing tax credit. That's not – Uh, 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 what is it? Public housing. Those are working people. So our, if you look at our uh, tenant base in this particular space, and I'll talk a little bit more about what we're doing, the biggest uh, demand is in the nursing industry, right? We've got a lot of nurses who need to work around children's hospital or university hospital and need to be able to walk to work. So teachers and nurses and and, uh, and policemen and firemen form the backbone of the urban economy and were largely ignored by the real estate boom that happened after the financial crisis.
1: And what's interesting about the, the examples you mentioned is that these are jobs that are often um, very well served by living close to their Absolutely. employers. I mean, if you're police or fire, they actually have been required to live in the city. And
2: they form the backbone of the economy. Yeah, exactly. Everything else is gravy, yeah. right? right? But don't but miss your garbage man for two weeks. Right. right, right. Miss your the person who drives the bus or the, whose name you don't know, that they form the backbone and the lubricant that forms the economy, particularly in the urban center. And yet in all the major cities that you mentioned, they're priced out of the core.
0: Well, and the, and you know, you, we can think here in Philadelphia quite concretely. We had a pretty rough winter, right? right? We had some major storms. Yep. And when those folks can't get to work, we it, really feel
2: it. It right. shuts down yeah. the economy. Exactly. Yeah. Policemen as well. I mean, policemen make what? They start in the 40s. They peak out at 60 to 80. You know, your, Some of your captains might make 100 or better, but the average policeman isn't. But you need them in and around the city. And so our focus uh, was really to respond to that demand. When, when people got into this space, so there, there was an initial entrance into the uh, single-family residential market. So when the markets failed, people built glass towers to house a high-end affluent residents. That was right. the initial response. Then from there, people said, you know what, they want to uh, respond by building homes for uh, more affluent people, but they all went to the suburbs, right? So there are large publicly traded REITs like Invitation Homes or Colony Capital, which was bought by Invitation Homes or American Homes for Rent. All of them are in the single family home for rent space, but um, but they basically went to the suburbs and built there and didn't come to the urban city for all kinds of reasons. Uh, number one is because all, often it's just easier to buy in bulk there. You have something called the judicial versus the non-judicial state. So in Texas and um, Arizona – You don't have to go to court for an individual foreclosure. Whereas, uh, and so you can buy 500 and 600 houses from a bank. You can't do that in Pennsylvania, New York, New Jersey, and the like. So, in the more uh, northeastern, quote unquote, liberal states, it's difficult to amass these masses of homes to rent to people. And so they basically stayed in the suburbs, they stayed in the south, and they stayed in the Midwest. But the most, as you mentioned, the most acute need for working people is in these major cities and in kind of the northeast, and if you throw in kind of San Francisco, California, and Chicago, and that is where the most acute need for affordable housing so is. So
1: how are you addressing this ish- issue? I mean, and again, you have that same thing in in the city that although our population has um, decreased, and so there are a lot of empty lots and sure. homes that aren't being lived in, you... You, you can't buy huge right. swaths of land or huge number of houses. What, do you, what, what does Steinbridge do?
2: So what we do, so just to give it some context, there are 133 million housing units in the United States. That includes everything, single-family homes, apartments. There are 84 million single-family homes in that. So only about 50 million apartment buildings and condos. Of that 84 million single-family homes, roughly, roughly 21 million are for rent. That includes about 4 million two to 4-unit homes. So roughly a quarter of the American housing stock is actually for rent. That's a huge number. If you take it and value it, it's worth about $3.5 trillion, which makes it the single largest investable asset class in the world, Uh, uh, Only second only to or on par with um, uh, U.S. treasuries. So it's bigger than apartment investing, bigger than other asset classes. Of that 21 million houses, only about 300,000 are owned by institutions. So that includes the publicly traded. REITs. That includes people like us. To be called an institution, you only need to own a hundred or more. Oh,
0: okay. So, so you're saying most of these are probably s- someone that owns a f- several apart or uh, not apartments, but like rental properties. Correct. You know, like as part of their own. You investment inherited yeah. your
2: grandmother's house, yeah.
0: and you rented it kept, out,
2: or you you know you got an extra home, or you got a vacation home, and you retire. So, But what ends up happening is those folks often lack the resources to keep these things in tip-top shape. Exactly. And let's be clear that Americans still prefer home living to apartment living, which is why there are 84 million single-family homes versus only 50 million multifamily units, including condos. There is a large preference for living in homes in the United States, raising your children in homes. There's there's a cultural and and a historical preference for that. And so our response to that really was to say, okay, well, these other guys went to the judicial states. They went to the south and northeast. Arizona represents about 2.4% of the American population, represents almost 12% of investing in single-family home rental. Why? Because it was easy to buy there. Right. New York City represents – New York State represents about uh, you know, 6% of the American population, less than 1% of institutional investment in single-family homes because it's so hard to buy in New York. So the point is, is that we said – First, we'll go to the judicial state, the non-judicial, the judicial states, New York, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, uh, Illinois, and we'll invest there. Number two, we will invest in and around the city where they demand and need for affordable housing. Again, this is housing for people who have good credit scores, get up and work every morning, but they can't drop 400 grand on a right, house in, right. in and around central city. And that's our second target. Number three, what we do differently in this space is we invest in um transitioning neighborhoods, so we're able to identify um, the, and we study uh, uh, income trends and we study um, transitions in in housing, we study uh, education trends and all this. We're able to identify where these tipping points are. And what that allows us to do is really uh, invest where there is potential for displacement. So if you think about, Philadelphia is a great example, you think about Graduate Hospital, right? There's been a 1,600 percent increase in property values in Grassroot Hospital in the last 10 to 15 years. 1,600 percent. To go another mile south to Point Breeze, there's been an 1,100 percent increase in property values. So people who have lived and worked in these areas don't have the opportunity to buy or to participate in a booming transition in those neighborhoods. Better restaurants, better schools, safer streets, cleaner streets, and yet you've lived here all of your life and you can't afford it. That's not fair. And so what we do... That's the and, awful G word, right? It is. Centrification. Yeah, yeah. It is. And our strategy allows people who want to work in that area, whose history is in that area, whose grandparents were uh, born and raised in that area, to stay in those neighborhoods and participate in the change. And I think that that's why I think we've been successful in a partnership with uh, communities. I think that's partly why we've been successful in raising capital in this strategy, because it's very clear that we solve a meaningful problem kind of economic, socioeconomic dislocation. Uh, and that's kind of our, our approach.
1: And this is Dollars and Change on Sirius XM 111. We're talking with Tawan Davis, the CEO of the Steinbridge Group, about um, affordable housing and the uh, impact that that kind of uh, access can make.
0: And so, Tawan, what I wanted to start really wrapping our heads around, because this is the crux of Dollars and Change, the, the intersection of business and social impact, So we have a very good friend and alum, Bobby Turner, who does a lot of workforce housing. Mm. And, you know, he often, you know, he's been on the show talking about it. He has done talks for us. You know, the thing about the the segment of the market that you're talking about from a business perspective, one of the biggest risks is vacancy. Mm. And so one of the things about pricing things right and there's this tremendous demand
2: is that your, you know, your risk is probably less. Oh, my gosh. Listen, for every home that we list for lease, there are 26 applicants within 20, 48 hours. Wow. Because people, we ch- are, we charge between $900 and uh, $1,500 in That's... rent. Our average rent, weighted average, is 1250 right? We spend... Sign me up. Right? Yeah, say, and That's good. for every dollar we buy in a home, we spend another 33 to $0.38 cents to renovate. New kitchen, new bathroom, new roof, new facade. Before we even think about the house... We've dropped another 40 per, thirty to forty percent on renovating the home, mm-hmm. and
1: that's so important because right. a lot of a lot of the individuals who rent houses are don't are make ter- that investment. Don't make Let's that investment. See, and-
2: there is there is a great evil. Yeah. Called slumlordism. Yeah. And it is a moral evil because it leaves large swaths of neglected communities, but it's also bad business. Because you erode the value of your own asset. Who does that? (laughs) If you just look at the numbers over time, you erode the value of your asset. You always have tenancy problems because people won't stay, which means you've got to turn the house over more. There's uh, months and months of missed rent. Slumlordism actually is a bad business practice on the numbers itself before you even start talking about the fact that it's morally evil. So uh, we don't do that. We go into these transitioning neighborhoods and we invest Meaningfully, and frankly, we've been clear with our investment partners and our, our banks, if you don't want to invest with us, we're, we're not the guys for you, right? Go with somebody that's going to do something else. We invest, but also what that does is it creates value. It creates a stickier tenant. They want to stay in the neighborhood. They want to stay in that house. And as uh, as from a returns perspective, we're able to participate in the changing and increasing values of those neighborhoods, which helps us to then move to the next neighborhood and make the same play. So my view is that, you know, for this, you know, over time, the best resolutions for economic dislocations have to be private capital solutions. And we think that we have are taking an approach that provides a meaningful enough return that a private capital solution can help to address this challenge of uh, affordability.
0: So, it you know, as, as you describe combating gentrification and keeping and, – and combating dislocate, dislocation, keeping people in their homes, that – if you figured that out, we should share that story because <laughs> I feel like that's – I mean, that is the yeah. challenge. Even for the best-intentioned developers, sure. it's still a, it's still you a struggle.
2: You struggle. why? Because first of all, there's two things going on here. Number one is you got the fix-and-flip folks. They take out a 105% loan on the cost. They have to pay that back in nine months. Yeah. they got six months to build and three months to sell. We're not those guys. Yeah. We tell our investors we've got a five-, seven-, and ten-year period, whole period. If you're not ready – To be with us for 10 years, don't give us your money. This might take a minute. (laughs) This might take a while. If you're talking about investing in Point Breeze, that might not flip tomorrow. This might take some time. And so you've got to be with us for the long run. And I think that's one of the reasons why we're good neighbors, because we're not in a hurry. We make the investment. We're going to sit with these. And you
1: don't have to have that huge return so quickly. Not so so quickly. Exactly. Because you've measured it
2: over time. My church in New York um, uh, bought... Every almost every house on 130th Street between Fifth and Madison, in Harlem. Now this was in the late 90s, late 90s, early 2000s, and we bought them for maybe anywhere from 80 to 120 thousand dollars. We put another hundred grand into them. And had them valued recently, and they were like 2.8 million dollars a piece. So the church is sitting on 60 million dollars of real yeah. estate by accident. And it housed during that time. This is Frankel gave me this idea. You know, this it housed. Uh, s- uh, single mothers and it housed uh, senior citizens. They were doing good work but at the same time these people formed the bedrock of the community right. and now the church can use that capital and that value and that leverage in the community to continue its good work, mm-hmm. I believe and didn't take out government you know, funding, didn't did it, they raised a <laughs> collection and bought one house at a time Came became clear to me that the best solutions are always private solutions in the united states this is a private market economy and we can lean on government we can lean on tax collection we can lean on regulation at the end of the day it needs to be a private market solution and you know I, my view is that that really is why we're different is because we basically approach it as a long-term private market solution and we don't need to make a 33 percent ir in four and a half years to provide uh, for a private equity firm will make a killing, and I don't talk about our returns publicly, but we will m- do very well as a firm over a long arch of time because we have income, we have capital appreciation in the underlying asset, and the c- value of the portfolio creates a cap rate of uh, valuation from which we also benefit.
1: And, and so how do you... Wh- What's the number of houses that you like to buy in a particular area? A great right?
2: question. Because so.
1: part of this is if you're if you're stabilizing and hoping to build a community, buying one house in first place isn't going to do anything.
2: So our top line goal initially is to buy about four hundred twenty five million dollars worth of homes in the major cities in the Eastern Seaboard: Philadelphia, uh, northern New Jersey, the New York outer boroughs, Washington, and Boston. Our uh, 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 Philadelphia strategy is to buy. Somewhere between 400 and 600 houses, depending on the price and values, and that's about $60 million worth of investment. Right now, we're only really focused on three neighborhoods. We're focused on uh, Brewery Town, where it meets Strawberry Mansion. That's where I live. We're focusing. We're focused on right south of your neighborhood. uh, where uh, down in Point Breeze, where I'm moving soon. And our colleague
0: lives in just bought a house a couple years ago in Point Breeze. great
2: area. And we're focused on West Philadelphia, right here in the, oh. this area. So we basically invest from here to 52nd Street in West Philadelphia. So those are three neighborhoods, and we're trying to drop $60 million in those areas. And, really ret- and then we'll, we're studying now what should our next neighborhoods be. So we basically want to focus. Um, concentration is the key to success, I think. And so that's one of the reasons why we focus on only three or four neighborhoods at a time.
0: And so I, I know we're rapidly losing okay. time here, but... Um, you you alluded to this at the beginning as to what the market opportunity was and where you came in. When you talk about what if we know Philadelphia because we live here, mm. when you talk about Point Breeze Brewery Town, West Philadelphia, and and your strategy, I say
2: duh, duh. right, exactly. But why why aren't people doing this? It's a great question. Number one is because you need some money, and everything costs money. And there, I think we're one of the few people in the market. We go to these real estate conferences, and it's funny to watch. We're one of the few people in the market that, A, aren't afraid of the big city. I ran real estate uh, strategy and real estate investment for the Bloomberg administration in New York for the last two years. So New York has the most complicated real estate (laughs) rules and rental rules in the world, probably, other than maybe Paris. And uh, so we're not afraid of coming to Philadelphia. And if you're in Arizona, God bless you. And if you're in Tampa, it's simpler, right? Yeah, it's right. simpler than Philadelphia. That's number 1. Number 2 is the uh, the ability to amass large numbers is an elbow grease work. So you can't go to the bank and buy 600 houses from Wells Fargo. You must buy one. We have a team that buys a house at a time in that those three uh, neighborhoods. Yeah, and yeah. so that's that's a tougher a challenge. Work. It's a tougher challenge. Interesting.
1: So I, it, uh, I I really like the real estate play because I think that often when we're talking about social impact, we're talking about social entrepreneurs or investors in public equity or private equity. Sure. But real estate is so it's tangible, yeah. and it's impactful, it, and it's impactful. And it's and an don't... economic
2: multiplier. Yeah, That's what's exactly. so important. At any it takes about eight to twelve people to redo our houses. We do twenty houses at a time. We're employing one hundred and fifty people at a month. Right? Yeah. and we're trying to expand at 30 houses at a time that'll be two to three hundred people a month that we're employing we are we are big on diversity so we focus on bringing in firms that show diversity accountants and lawyers uh, so we're an economic multiplier which I think is unique to the real estate yeah, opportunity
1: right. well we have been talking with Tawan Davis the CEO of the Steinbridge group about how real estate can really make and neighborhood strong and the world better when we come back we'll talk with Elizabeth Cushing she's the president of Playworks we'll talk about recess and fun this is Dollars and Change on Sirius XM 111 talk to you soon
0: for more guest interviews check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play